All right, so we are in 2 Kings, and we're going to do a little bit of a survey of the book. What's this? Oh, I don't have any slides. Bummer. Okay. Um, if you could, uh, I will describe the pictures for you. All right? Use our imaginations this morning. Um, okay, so we're going to do a short survey of the book of Kings. Uh, we are in 2 Kings, uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Um, it's kind of like a sequel. It's debatable. Some people say that it's like a continuous story that they cut in half and they made one and two, but it's all one story. Uh, other, other scholars say that it is a part one and then a part two. It's a sequel. Uh, I don't think they know. But the point is, is that it begins, and we'll be talking about this next week, it begins with the construction of the temple. It's, 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 it's Camelot, right? It is, it is the, it's the height of Israel. It's the height of glory. It's the height of Israel's power. It doesn't get any better than when, when first Kings opens up. So it, it begins with the, with the, with the construction of the temple and it's, it is glorious. It's made of pure, it's made of gold and it, it has nature. It, it, it's, it literally represents heaven on earth in a structure. It harkens back to Eden. It, it is, it's absolutely fabulous. We have absolutely no proof of it archaeologically, but the Bible tells us that it's fabulous. Okay? So it, that's, where, that's where Kings begins, and it ends tragically with the destruction of the temple. In 586 or 587, depends on, on who you read, but the, the Babylonians come in and they completely destroy it. They level the temple. They level Israel, or they, they level Jerusalem down to the ground. There is an there is a, a archaeological uh, strata, the 586 strata. It is a big gray mark, about this big. This is how this is how archaeology archaeologists are able to date stuff. When they dig down and they hit this big, giant, gray burn level, that's how they know what the date of, the, of their strata is. It's, it's when the Babylonians came in and destroyed everything. And so we get to get really concrete uh, historical evidence of the Bible. So, you know, Moses and, you know, Abraham's like, well, we don't really have any evidence, but now we get some really concrete evidence that the Bible is true. We get archaeological evidence. And so um, the whole, the whole uh, story, again, Kings begins, and then right after Solomon dies, the glory is over, and we go into full-blown civil war, Jeroboam splits Israel. Now, here's the interesting thing about Jeroboam splitting Israel, is that God actually used Jeroboam's rebellion in reaction to the sins of Solomon. Because Solomon sinned. The wisest man that ever lived, he fell prey to foreign gods. And his consequence was a divided kingdom. And I guess Jeroboam had a chance to pull it off, but he, he messes up too. All right, so we have two kingdoms. We have, if, if I had a map, you'd see how cool it is. But we have the northern kingdom of Israel. Now keep in mind that, the, that whenever we're talking about Israel from now on, they're the rebels. They're the not-so-good guys. 
And the somewhat good guys are the nation of Judah in the south. And that's where Jerusalem is. And that's where the temple is. Okay, we all square on that? All right. So the nation of Israel, they're kind of naughty. And there's two kings. Now, for some 20 kings. So the, the book of Kings does a little chronology. It goes through all these kings. It's like the Game of Thrones. Everybody's killing everybody. In the northern kingdom of Israel, there's about roughly 20 kings. They're all naughty. Every single one of the kings of Israel, they, the, the Bible says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, that they prostituted themselves to Baal or these other gods, but they, didn't, they, were not, they, just, they just didn't get it. Maybe they did a few good things, but in the end, when their name got written down in the Bible, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That, how would you like to go down in the Bible for all eternity for doing evil in the sight of the Lord? That's... Yeah, it's, it's rough. So thank God that you live in this generation where, you know, they don't write about you for eternity. So, um, so a good, zero out of 20, the kings of Israel, none of them are any good. They're a bunch of no goods. Hmm? In Judah, out of 20 kings, there's only eight. So not much better, but a little bit better. So we have eight kings where they actually follow the heart of, of their father, David, where they are true to the covenant, where they only worship one God and not Yahweh and all these other gods. So there's eight of them that do, you know, somewhat good stuff. And the two that are the best are Hezekiah and Josiah. And Hezekiah, uh, he was... uh, uh, he was a reformer. He tore down all these high places, all these, these, uh, these uh, worship sites that were dedicated to the naughty gods. So Hezekiah was a good king. He was a good king, Hezekiah. And when he was ruling, there was some major drama. There was major tension in the area. Because while he was... Uh, bringing in reform to Israel while he was establishing, um, while he was trying to establish a godly kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel was being completely ravaged by the new bad guys, the Assyrians. The Assyrians came from uh, northern Iraq. And they, I mean, you thought that the Philistines were bad. Again, the Philistines were a bunch of Vikings, right? They were a bunch of, uh, they, they, just, they, they were annoying people. Uh, the Canaanites, you know, they were, they were a bunch of partiers and ungodly people. The Assyrians, they were the juggernaut. They were a huge empire, and they were completely unstoppable. They were on their way to Egypt. And so Israel was just this little byway in the middle of their goal. And so they really... Israel was an easy target for the Assyrians. They were so mean and nasty. So not only did, I mean, their their strategy, their conquering strategy was to come in and to completely kill and humiliate and, and, and subjugate everybody by fear and trembling. Rarely did they put in a puppet king. They, they just came in and they said, look, we are going... You are, you are going to give us tribute, 
And if you do not, we will kill you. And they actually invented crucifixion. So these are the guys that trained the Romans on how to torture people. And they enjoyed it. They, should I talk about it? It's horrible. Like they were able to keep you alive for a very long time on a stake. And the purpose of it is so they could, they could just put you out in front of everybody and bring fear into everybody's hearts. Now, the Assyrians came in, and this is why it's so tragic. This is why Kings is so hard sometimes, because the Assyrians come in, and they destroy, and they lead the entire nation of Israel, the not-so-good guys, into captivity. Ten tribes, you know, these, these tribes of Israel, that, the, the, the children of Jacob that we talk about so much, they're gone forever. And you're thinking, to, when I read this, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this does not seem like your plan. How could, the, how God, how could you possibly be in this? Because Jacob's, or Abraham's descendants were supposed to number the stars. And there's something special. You're into numbers. There's something special about numbers. And there's something special about your tribes. And 10 tribes are just gone? Your people are gone forever? And you begin to, when, you, when you begin to read it, you're like, oh my gosh, is this the end of the story? And it really feels like it's the end of the story. And Hezekiah is watching the entire northern kingdom go away. Their capital, their holy city of Samaria is gone, and he witnesses it. And he's freaking out. Have you ever freaked out? Have you ever had your security ripped away? Have you ever had your very identity um, called into question or challenged? It's tough. If maybe your identity is in your career and what you do, and then all of a sudden that's taken away, and what do you have left? And so Hezekiah is freaking out. He just, he just watched, and then he watched his brothers and sisters uh, get destroyed and carried off, and he's never going to see them again. He begins to give Assyria money. Don't, don't attack me. Just, you know, here's some gold. So he tries to placate them, but that's not going to be good enough because Assyria is, again, it's the juggernaut. There is no stopping them. They are going to take what they want. Hezekiah makes some deal with Egypt, or he's trying, he's trying so hard to save the nation. And you should read it. But the ancient, ancient leaders are great at trash talking. You thought basketball players were good at trash talking. The ancient kings are really good at trash talking. And they're just... Tiglath Pileser says, you know what? You guys are done. We're going to come and get you. We are going to destroy you. What we did to your brothers up north, we're going to do to you. You guys are over with. And it is at this really strange point where Hezekiah realizes that he does not have the power to resist the juggernaut. Have you ever felt like this? Like, how many people have some, okay, everybody does, but we all have some natural abilities. 
Like there are things that you can do within your own power. You can make things happen. Have you ever had those resources tested? I am coming, I'm becoming uh, very aware of my limitations in life. It's very frustrating. I would love to be able to minister and serve everybody that I come in contact with. I realize I can't do it. And what God is telling me is that might be your job. You might be called to minister to other people because I can't get to everybody. That's what we call the priesthood of believers. And so Hezekiah is limited. And here's one of these things that is one of these mind-boggling miracles. The Assyrians are at the gates of Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the city. They're going to take all the gold out of the temple. They're going to destroy the temple. And then the guys wake up, and everybody's dead. The angel of the Lord literally comes in, and he kills tens and thousands of, of soldiers. And at the same time, they get a call from back home. We're being attacked. You guys need to come back home. And Hezekiah, his whole nation is saved by a, by a miracle of God that just happens literally overnight. When the enemy is at the door, when they're about to go down, the very last minute when they're about to be sunk, the angel of the Lord comes in and saves them. He rescues an entire nation because of good King Hezekiah. He has a son. And then we have good King Josiah. Good King Josiah um, discovers that, oh my gosh, we have a Bible. <laughs> so they're doing some renovations, and they actually discover a Bible. And they're sad that they have missed out on the law, that they've missed out on the word of God, that they've been living their lives according to their own wills and not surrendering to the will of God. They have been living outside of their call for, for generations. And when the people hear the word of God being preached, they begin to get sad and cry. And the priests run out into the audience and they say, don't cry, be happy, because you've found the word of God. And in this word of God, there is hope. And because they found the Bible, because they found the law, well, we have what we have now. But it was the seed of hope that got them through some very difficult times. Now, between, between good King Hezekiah and good King Josiah, there is by far the worst king that has ever been produced in the north and in the south. But Manasseh was the king in between Hezekiah and King Josiah. He is a Judean king, and he is horrible. He is evil. And his actions are so bad that it, complete, it dooms the nation of Judah as well. Manasseh, not only does he worship the other gods, maybe he worships Yahweh a little bit, but not only does he worship the other gods, he brings the other gods into God's house, into the temple. He literally brings statues of Asherah and Baal and Chemosh and all the other horrible gods. He brings them in and he defiles the temple of God. You can see why this is a big deal, right? And it gets even worse. 
because Manasseh does the ultimate desecration. He brings in prostitutes. This is a great way to build church, I think. Like, if you're bored with church, would it help if I brought in some prostitutes? Right? Would that help? And when you get bored with female prostitutes, we can bring in male prostitutes. And the male prostitutes weren't for the ladies because the ladies couldn't make the sacrifices like the men could do. So it has completely degraded into the worst possible form of worship that you could possibly think of. And then Manasseh completely pushes the button and he sacrifices his own son to these gods. He burns his own son on the altar. And that does it. So not only is the northern kingdom of Israel gone and and, and given over to the Assyrians, but Judah, the southern kingdom with the eight good kings out of 20, they are doomed too. And Babylon, the, the empire of Babylon now comes in And this happens in 586. Again, like I said, it's that burn layer. They come in and they haul off everybody else. And they burn God's temple to the ground. All right. You ready for this? This is what you can talk about at lunch today. I'm going to give you something interesting to talk about. So you you don't have to talk about the Kardashians or, I don't know, American Idol or whatever you guys talk about at lunch. You can talk about this. Because what the Bible says... You ready? This is tough. Very difficult stuff. The Bible says is that the Assyrians and the Babylonians were God's judgment against Israel, both the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah, the southern nation of Judah. That was God's judgment. Let me me read you some scripture on this. All right, here we go. This is Isaiah 7.20. In that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your heads. And I'll skip this one. Shave your heads and the rest of your body and will cut off your beards also. Isaiah 10, 5 says, Woe to you, uh, Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. Why is this tough? It's because God is using Assyria and Babylon as his tool to punish his children. because they've been disobedient, because they've been rebellious, uh, because they've burned their own children on an altar. How do you feel about this? Does this apply to your life? I think that it does. Because these are these questions that we have to ask. These are some very important questions that we need to reflect on. Are you going through difficult times? Are you struggling And you don't know why. What is the source of it? Okay, ready? This is why it's going to get tough. Could it be that God is punishing you? What? Pastor Josh, are you kidding me? 
I don't know, maybe. Would God do such a thing? Are you paying the consequences of past decisions? Whatever you're dealing with right now, maybe it's debt, maybe it's a broken relationship, maybe it's a failed career, uh, whatever it might be, uh, illness, sickness, is that a result of decisions that you've made, rebellion that you've caused, or sin in your life? Is it? I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying these are things that we should talk about. Like you should have this conversation at lunch. And man, this is pretty heavy. Yeah. All right, here's the other side of the coin. We live in a new covenant, right? So what God does to Israel, using the enemy of God to pour out his justice, what God does, okay, is completely good. So when you ask these questions at lunch, that needs to be, that needs to be the grid. Is it the cornerstone of all theology is that God is good. And even though God hauling off the Israelites into captivity, that is, believe it or not, in that time and in that space, that is a form of God's goodness. Are you struggling with something? Is God, is God disciplining you in any area? You gotta keep in mind that God is always good. Now, here's the, here's the thing that we've gotta get into our heads. God is not the author of evil. So if you are experiencing evil, God is not the author of that. If somebody has inflicted harm on you, if if somebody has hurt you physically or emotionally, that is not God's hand. And furthermore, since we live under a new covenant, what does that mean? Since we live in under God's grace, under God's redeeming grace through the shedding of Jesus' blood, does that mean we have to pay the consequences for all of our sins? I don't know. I, if you, uh, in another business that we had, um, we had somebody that stole from us. Very difficult. Have you ever had anybody steal from you? What's the initial reaction when somebody steals from you? You want to get on the phone and you want to call the police, right? You you want justice and you demand justice. There's consequences for illegal activity. I think we all can agree with that. Then there should be. We showed grace. I mean, we probably should have hauled the guy off to jail. But we showed grace to the individual. So the situation that you're in right now, again, here's the, here's the conversation. Has God pushed you into an uncomfortable situation to form you, to build your character, to make you stronger? Or... Is it spiritual warfare? Are you actually, maybe God isn't teaching you something. Maybe you're under attack. Or uh, are you not allowing the grace of God to come in and to pay your debt? Does that make sense? 
Sometimes we deal with pain. Sometimes we deal with difficulties and struggles because we have not allowed God to grace us. And that one is the easiest thing to do, but it's also the hardest thing to do because God wants to grace us. All right, so there's your, there's your points of conversation. And this is what happens to Jerusalem. It gets destroyed. It's completely tragic. It's the whole, basically the whole summary of of kings, first and second kings. But in the middle of it all, we have to look at the prophets. And so this is actually going to be the point of the whole message. It's because there's something going on with the prophets, because they are called. We know, the Bible tells us, that. remember we talked about the sins of Jeroboam? It is the sin of Jeroboam, his rebellion, his, uh, his, uh, his coup d'etat, his, his ability to split the kingdom. It is his sin that led to the Assyrians coming off and hauling everybody off. This happens hundreds of years later, by the way. It is the seed of one man's sin that dooms an entire nation. Well, God, that's just not fair. Why do I have to pay the consequences from one man's sin? And this is where the prophets come into play, and I hope this makes sense. All right, let's get your Bibles out, and we're going to look at 2 Kings. All right, first of all, you know what? We're going to look at 1 Kings first. We're going to review something real quick. This is 1 Kings chapter 19, and this is the call of Elisha. All right, so we have two major prophets, and guess where they are ministering? Guess where they're working? They are working in the northern tribe. They are reaching, they're trying to reach the least likely people that are going to accept the good news. They're trying to reach the least likely people that are going to fall, excuse me, that are going to fall in line and they're going to serve God. That is their assignment. And Elisha and Elisha, Elijah and Elisha, I wish they would have made it a little simpler, but they... That's why you know the Bible is real, right? Because if I was writing this, I would not have named these two guys Elisha and Elijah. I'm just so confusing. I'm still confused. But Elijah and Elisha, they are the most powerful prophets in the Bible. There's something about them. Uh, they are what we call non-literary prophets, meaning that uh, there is no book of Elijah or Elisha. There, um, like Isaiah has a has a book of pro, you know he's got his own book right and they, it's a it's a it's a recording of all of his fancy sayings, but we don't have that for Elijah and Elisha, they are, they are non literary prophets and and they are not prophets in the sense of a Nostradamus, they're they're not going to come and tell you the future, they are going to come in. And they are going to bring conviction into specifically the leadership, into the king. Again, this is the illustration that I made last week. How would it be if I, if I showed up under the White House and I, and I told the president, the president what's up? Would they listen to me? Would, could, Billy Graham have, could Billy Graham have authority and leadership over President Obama? It would not happen. He's going to pay him lip service. He's going to do the photo op, but he's not going to listen to what Billy Graham has to say. 
No president has or and probably ever will because we value political authority over religious obedience. That's just how our nation was built. So we are trusting man to run our government over God. And that's just the way that it is. Okay? So um, Elijah and Elisha, they, their, their goal is not to tell the future. They are not foretellers. They are forthtellers. And what they are saying to the king and to the nation says, you guys are out of line. This is God's will. And they say... And, and the other prophets do this as well. They're saying, this is what's going to happen unless you shape up. So Elijah, which we'd heard about last week, calls Elisha. And so and this is it, uh, 19 verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 19. So Elijah went from there, and he found Elisha, uh, son of Shaphat, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him, and he threw his cloak around him. Elijah then left his oxen, and he ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and I will go with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him, and he went back, and he took his yoke of oxen, and he slaughtered them. He burned the plow equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. Then Elijah, then he said, uh, excuse me, then he set out to follow Elijah, and he became his attendant. Okay, so here we go. Uh, what does this all mean? It's actually very important. Does it apply to you? Absolutely, because this is a call. I mean, I better have a call in my life, right? Because I'm the pastor. But guess what? You have a call too. Every one of us has a call. You are all called into God's kingdom. And we've got to get this. You, are, you have a calling to being, like being a follower, being a child of God. So you have a call to just... I don't know, if you will, to simplify it, to cross that line of faith and become, become a Christian. But you also have a calling to do. And Elijah has this very powerful call in his life. Uh, Elijah, okay, let me, let me simplify it this way. Okay, Elijah is the older guy, and he's the wild-eyed, hairy, crazy guy that lives in the desert, okay? He's the eccentric. And Elijah, his successor is bald. And believe it or not, from this text that we just read, he's got his act together. How do I know this? Because he has 12 yoke of oxen. That means he's got 24 oxen. And furthermore, he is only driving half of them. That means he's got somebody helping him. In addition to that, when he responds to the call, uh, he burns his plow, and he sacrificed the meat. What does that mean? That means that these are not dad's. These are his. So this very young man uh, in, see, we don't get this, but the ancients would have got this. This very young man was actually very wealthy, and he was, he was independent. 
And when Elijah, the crazy-eyed, wild, old guy, comes in with his stinky, with his smelly, stinky cloak, he throws it over Elisha, the bald guy. Elisha knows what that means. Oh, my goodness. The prophet put his mantle on me. He is calling me to be his successor. And just like an eccentric, throws his coat over him, and then he takes off. Right? No explanation. No, hey, uh, I have a job description. I want you to think about it, pray about it. Um, maybe you would like to join me. The pay's not so great, but man, the, the benefits are amazing. Right? There's none of that. He just throws his cloak, walks off, and Elijah the ball guy chases the crazy guy. And he says, oh, you're calling me? And this is what we got to get. He says, let me kiss my, my father. Give me, give me the opportunity to go back and kiss my father. And um, here's what we got to get. Elijah says, I don't care. What's that to me? Is what he literally says. And what is that supposed to, how does that translate? What is that to me? What Elijah is saying is, that's none of my business. Yeah, I put my coat over you, but I am not calling you. God is calling you. So I don't really care what you do, son. Uh, I've done my job in saying, all right, I think God has his hand on you. But what you do next is completely and entirely up to you, and it's a, it's a relationship between you and God. Do, do you see? And what unfolds is we do not see Elisha, the bald guy, kissing his mom and dad goodbye. We see him burning his assets. Uh, there's some scriptures in, in the New Testament that, 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 that are shadows of this. It's the rich young ruler who, who Jesus calls, and he's heartbroken because he's rich, and he can't do it. He can't give up his stuff. There's the other reference where Jesus says, uh, a man that has one hand on the plow is not worthy of the kingdom. And why Elisha is so powerful, why his ministry is so poignant, is because he gives it all up unconditionally. And this is what we got to get. When God calls us, when God gets your attention, or when he gets your kids' attention, uh, you don't get to test drive the car. You know? You don't get to try out Christianity to see if it's a good fit for you. You have to jump in unconditionally. I'm not saying you, you go and you, know, you, you, you cash out your bank account and you set all your money on fire. I mean, literally, that's what this young man is doing. He's burning his cash and he's throwing a party and all of, he doesn't have anything. He gives it all up as a response to the call. So can we, can we do that? It's hard because we want options, right? 
We're going to test this thing out, and we're going to see if it pays off. Now, everybody in this room, by and large, I think you guys are all in, because I know most of you. But those that you're trying to minister to, I think when we try to evangelize or when we try to share our faith, we come at it maybe too apologetically. You know, maybe you should try out church. You, you know, come, come to a church service. And this is, again, this is American culture. Come to church service and you will be inspired, right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Like, I, when I go to a religious service or, you know, either here or somewhere else, like, I am looking for something. I'm looking to be inspired, right? I need, to, I need to, like, if I don't have church on Sunday, I can't make it through the rest of the week. If you can, you're awesome. But I have to worship. I've got to connect with God. I've got to Sabbath. If I don't, I just, life doesn't seem real to me. So I've got to have this. Is it something you can just, you got to go all in. And Elisha goes all in. He responds to the call. Now, it, um, people that have ran the numbers, when Elijah follows the crazy guy Elijah, when the, when the young rich kid that has it all together follows the wild-eyed eccentric, let me ask you this. Would you do that? Would you follow Jeff Bridges around? Would you follow the dude around? Because he's the holy man? You want to know how long Elijah follows him around? 18 years. He is an apprentice. He is an intern. He is a scrub for 18 years. Could you, could you have the patience to do that? To wait on the dude for 18 years? That would drive you nuts. Drive me nuts. But he does it. He's faithful, and he's faithful to his calling. But for 18 years, we see Elisha do nothing at all. There are no signs. There are no wonders. There are no marvelous acts of God. All he does is bring Elijah his, his soup, his soup or whatever. That's all he does. See, he responded to his call but he hasn't been tested or he hasn't been proven ready to respond to his action, to his, to his um, calling, to respond to the call, but he hasn't done anything yet. And it's probably a good thing. I, I've seen, uh, this isn't just me, this is, I've seen this a million different places where people respond to the call and immediately they, they try and do stuff. They try, to, um, they try to define their ministry before they've become an apprentice. They, they, they try to, to be a leader before they've been discipled. And they're not ready for it. And the devil eats their lunch. And so maybe right now you just need to think to yourself, where am I? Am I, I know that God has called me, or else I wouldn't be sitting here, but where am I? All right, let me read to you. Um, uh, Elijah's installation. This is Second uh, Kings chapter two, verse seven. Fifty men of the company of the prophets 
They went and they stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took out his cloak. He rolled it up and he struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left. So he split the Jordan. And the two of them crossed over. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. Elijah's going to leave the planet. Hmm? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elijah says. This is a huge claim. Let me inherit a double portion. Is he being greedy? Is he saying, I want to be, be twice as cool as you are? Not exactly. He wants his inheritance. He wants a spiritual inheritance. And whenever you received your inheritance, you got a double portion if you were the only child. So he gets the fullness of, of Elijah's inheritance. He gets it all. But here's the interesting thing. Elijah does... 14 miracles. Elijah does seven miracles that are recorded. It's interesting, huh? I'm sure they did a lot more, but whoever was writing this down, they decided to make that distinction that Elijah does more miracles than his predecessor. You ask a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. And as they were walking along, talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared, and he separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elijah saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen off of Elijah and he went back and he stood on the banks of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and he struck the water with it. Where is the, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left. Now, we have a song that we sing in popular culture, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, right? This is, this is a very, okay, I, I love the song. I don't want to degrade the song, but there's nothing sweet about chariots. These are tanks. So if we were to put this in a modern setting, it would be tanks of fire that, that come in and make their appearance. Chariots were, were, were instruments of warfare, you didn't, you didn't take your, your date out on a cruise in a chariot. You just didn't do that. And so there's nothing sweet. It is, it is a demonstration of spiritual warfare. It comes in, and it, it, I, wish I wish we could see it. Again, this is another one that I'm going to get on DVR. And it's like, it comes in, and he separates the two. And then this oh, chariot's a fire. Who knows what they are? And Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind. And Elisha is able to do exactly what Elijah does. He responds to the call, and he himself separates the water. And he's been faithful to his call, and now he's moving into his calling. Elijah and Elisha, they minister in the northern kingdom. Why is that important? 
is because God hasn't given up on them. Like the naughtiest of the naughty guys, they get the two most powerful prophets. The two most powerful prophets are prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so what does that tell me? It tells me that God, no matter how bad you are, no matter what state you've gotten yourself into, no matter what mess that you've made, maybe you're paying the consequences of it. Maybe you need to allow God's grace to come in and just write the check for you. Maybe you just need to give up your pride and your arrogance and then let God bless you and free you from stuff. But you need to know that God is going to give you his best He will send in his very best prophets, his most powerful assets. He will put them into your life so that he can save you. Even though it might seem that you're destined to destruction, he is always looking for a second hope. It is that the story has not been written. Your life is not a failure. There is always hope. It might seem like somebody has prophesied negative things into your life. Maybe your parents, maybe your teachers, maybe, maybe your friends have put negative prophetic words into your heart, but you do not have to accept them. Maybe if they're even true, you don't have to accept them. One of the major themes of the Bible is that you, and being empowered by the Holy Spirit, you with God design your own life. You If you get God's will into your heart, you design who you want to be in God's image. You don't discover yourself. Don't do that. Go on a journey with God. Design who you are. All right, if I could have the band and ushers come to the front. All right. Let me end on this. God is always good and he's good all the time. I want you to go home, do an inventory of your situations. Why are you in this situation? Why are you freaking out? Why are you stressed out? Is it God trying to discipline? Are you paying the consequences of sin? Have you not allowed God to come in and grace you? Do you not have God's favor on your life because there's this certain area that you haven't given up? Are you, and this is tough, are you self-centered or are you God-centered? There's there's a huge question that we all have to answer. Am I self-centered or am I God-centered? He's going to send you his very best, and we just need to respond to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our freedom. We thank you for our ability to choose you. We're thankful for our ability to course correct, even when it looks like things are going down and it doesn't look like there's much hope for future that you have always got another plan A, that you've always have a solution and that it is not your will or your desire to send us into pain, but you want to deliver us 
from difficulties. And so God, I pray that we will allow you to do that this day. May you just bless us in your name, Lord Jesus.